So many people, it seems to me today, are searching for a purpose in life, a kind of cause to rally behind, you might say. Something to go after, an aim to follow. And today we're going to see how God guides, guided rather Nehemiah towards his great purpose, the thing that we know him for, restoring the ruins of the walls in Jerusalem. Today we're going to see how God encourages him with all the provision that he needed in order to make it happen. If you're not sure what God has in store for you at the moment, what his purpose is over your life, if you're struggling to find that objective to aim for, that thing that gets you up out of bed in the morning, excited to go and pursue it again, my prayer for you today is that, like the example of Nehemiah, you would get an example to follow. You would get a way to go after. And that more than that, really, you would have a moment of encounter with God. He would speak that purpose into you, would encourage you with his blessing, would bring you what you lack, and would set you on your way. Each of us needs purpose, direction, something to go after, a cause to achieve. And I believe God's got that in store for you. If you know it right now, see this as confirmation time. And if you're not sure, see this as a moment to open yourself to God and say, what is it that you've got for me? Just like you spoke to Nehemiah, speak to me today. We're in the second week of a series through Nehemiah, seven lessons, one each week. And last week, we talked about the reason for this being that I think the country, if you like, is in a time of rebuilding. COVID was a bit of a decimation to everyone, wasn't it? A two-year black hole that just seemed to sort of swallow everything up. Plans went in the bin. Things that people hoped to do just couldn't quite happen. And bit by bit, as we've returned to some level of normality, we're rebuilding, aren't we? Not necessarily what was there before, because I hope we're rebuilding something better with the lessons that we've learned in that time in tow. But we're in a period of rebuilding. I said last week, this church is in a period of rebuilding. We're here to restore it to fullness, to glory, building on great foundations, but adding new things to reach new people. We're rebuilding it brick by brick and person by person. And maybe in your life, you'd say, I'm in a bit of a rebuilding time. Something's knocked me over. Something took me by surprise. Something unexpected happened, and it just took the wind out of my sails, and I'm needing to get back on my feet and go again. Maybe that's not where you are now, but I'm sure you might recognize back in the past a moment when that happened. Maybe today is a chance to recap that, to go over that with God and say, did I get everything that I could from you in that? Maybe you're storing this up for the future because as life ups and downs, as things go better and then sometimes go worse, I trust that each of us are going to be in periods of rebuilding at some time. So if this is for you today, receive it as a gift. If this is processing something that happened in the past, I hope that it helps. But maybe this is just one to stockpile for the future given what might come in the years ahead. We went through chapter one last week, Nehemiah being part of the people of God, but not in the place of the people of God, part of the exile in Babylon. Exiled because of disobedience to God, they've been banished from Jerusalem, their city, the city of God, the city of God's shalom, peace. And he longed to be back home. He longed to be where his heart was. 
And he longed for all of the people of God to be able to be there, but he hears that it's in ruin. It's destroyed and devastated. The gates are broken down so anyone can get in and out. Rampage at any moment, looting or rioting or whatever might have come. And his first response, as we saw last week, was to pray. To mourn what was going on, really genuinely mourn it. To fast, to go without food and other things, to simplify his life, to be able to devote himself fully to prayer. And he prays and prays and prays. And for days, he meets God in that place. And we kind of pick up at the beginning of chapter 2 from there. So if you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, turn with me to Nehemiah. We're going to read from chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible and you need one um, to take home with you, please let me know at the end. We've got some spares. We'd love to gift you. Uh, Grab one for today. Get it on your phone, whatever it needs to be. We're going to read through Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. In the month of Nisan... In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Let's pause there for a moment. We ended last time with a bit of a light bulb moment, didn't we? This great prayer ends. And then Nehemiah just says, I was cupbearer to the king. It's like a complete about turn, this long prayer and then this one line. But what we see here is him picking up from that. It's almost like his prayer ended and he remembered, I'm cupbearer to the king. That's a position of trust, being very close to the king, tasting what they drink before they drink it, so that if it's poisoned, the king knows about it before they take it in themselves. This is an important position, a trusted position, where you get within arm's reach of one of the most important people in the country. We talked last week about what's in your hand, what's available to you. Maybe you're not cupbearer to a king. I'm not sure kings have cupbearers anymore. But what do you have? Something at work, a friendship, an idea, a skill, a hobby. What have you got that you might use for God? Nehemiah realizes he was cupbearer to the king. And then in this verse, we see him going about that work. Let's carry on. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah had evidently worked faithfully and diligently and probably cheerfully because the first time he goes into his boss's presence sad, his boss knows about it. You're out of character. Something's not quite right. I normally expect you to be so cheerful and happy about what you do, bearing my cup. So when he wasn't, it was clear. And I think there's a lesson even in that for us, isn't there? Going about the work that we are employed in cheerfully, with thanks, with gratitude, with optimism, with hope. Going in with solutions like Hillary's just talked about, not coming in just to amplify problems. Wouldn't it be amazing if every one of us was so cheerful and diligent about the work that we did that the moment we had a down day, because we're burdened with something that God's put on our heart, our boss can see it on our face. Wouldn't it be great if Christians were known as the cheerfulest workers, the most diligent, with the most integrity, the most 
moral ethics, not cutting corners, not turning up late, but just doing what they do really well. Even before we get to the main point of this chapter, I think there's a lesson in there for us. Nehemiah's sadness was real. He wasn't faking mourning. He wasn't fasting because he thought, oh, it will look good. This really wounded him. His people were in ruin. God's city was in ruin. And that put his people in disgrace. So the king responds to find out what's going on. And an opportunity opened up. Let's carry on reading. I was much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. We see here Nehemiah pushing through his fear. Nehemiah doesn't let what scares him about addressing this with the king stop him from doing it. He says, even though I'm afraid, I carry on. He stands on, in faith in God rather than fear of man. Not afraid of what his boss might say back to him. What do you think you're on about? I'm not going to support that. You're not going to get the time off, whatever it might be. Nehemiah is able to push through his fear. He's sad because Jerusalem is in ruin. And his boss turns around and says, what is it that you want? I think that was probably more than Nehemiah was expecting. What is it that you want? Hang on a minute. He's not just blown me out of his presence and said, bring me my cut back and be quiet about everything else. Already he's got more than I think he was expecting. And did you see again, the second part of verse four, the king says, what is it that you want? And straight away, before he even says a word back to the king, he prays to the God of heaven. Just a moment, maybe, in his head like a, God, please help me in this. Help me articulate something sweetly. Help me say what it is that you want me to. And then, verse 5, I answered the king. Nehemiah shows us that he wasn't willing to address a human ruler without having first addressed a heavenly ruler. He's not willing to go before his boss before he's gone before his lord. And even in a moment, if it was a sentence in his head, he had to pray before he went on and answered it. Nehemiah, as we saw last week, as we'll see again today, is a person of prayer, and he's not willing to do anything without it. He's not willing to take a step without having gone before his Lord. So he prays in that moment. He's already prayed, but he wants to pray again. And then we start to see an opportunity begin to open up. Please, King, let me go to this city and rebuild it. Please let me go and restore it to its former glory. This moment of opportunity turns into more like a window of opportunity. The king seems interested. He's favorable towards it, even though, let's remember, he's not from Jerusalem. He's not one of the people of Israel. He's a Persian king. He worships a different god, if any god at all. 
This isn't someone you were expecting to be on your side, and yet he is. Let's carry on reading from verse 7. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. It's almost as if Nehemiah's on a bit of a roll now. He's asked for one thing and got a better response than he was expecting, so he kind of goes the whole hog. Don't just send me. Send me with letters to get through every country in the meantime. Send me with your blessing so that I can get through all the customs, if you like, that's going to be between me and there. And then, pushing it even further, send me with all the resources of the royal parks. Persian king, not a god worshipper, but he asks him, would you send me with a load of wood to rebuild the gates? Would you go before me and send me with all the resources I'm going to need? Not just for the, um, the walls, but also for his residence. Give me the materials it's going to take. Out of your bounty, out of your pocket, give me what it's going to take to rebuild the walls for the glory of my God. And then, because the gracious hand of his Lord was on him, the king said yes. Let's finish it off the section, beginning again from verse 9. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal wall and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. So we see here that Nehemiah makes the journey. He takes the trip. He keeps it all to himself, completely quiet between him and his boss and the Lord. And Nehemiah goes about this work of inspecting the city from every side, going through what was left of all the gates. Did you notice that the king had gone even beyond what Nehemiah had asked him for? He didn't just send him with letters of approval. He didn't just send him with materials. But he sent him with his own people. The king was willing to send with him officials, horses to ride on, Whatever it would be, army officers and cavalry, 
Nehemiah makes a great request and God goes beyond even that so that the king brings back even more. Let's finish off just by reading verses 17 and 18 before unpacking what it might mean for us. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us rebuild, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Nehemiah, having prayed and being given so much from the hand of his boss, someone from whom you would have expected so little, having inspected and surveyed the state of the walls and the gates, he says to the people of Jerusalem, the priests, those that would have led worship in the temple which Ezra had just restored, the nobles and officials, civil servants, people with some level of authority, and also to the workers who were gathered there. We're in a mess. Our city is in ruin, and that means God's name is kind of in ruin. Let's restore the wall and end our disgrace. And then he told them about the gracious hand of the Lord on him, what the king had already done for him. And the people in unison replied, let's do it. And so they began this good and mammoth work. Got three things really to say from this passage. The first is that as we see from Nehemiah, your purpose might start from a problem. You might see a problem around you, and that might become part of the purpose of God for your life. Nehemiah's problem, the state of the city of Jerusalem. There might be something that you see all the time that really irks you. You might drive past something on the way to work, and somehow you can't take your eye off it. A particular street near you, maybe, where there's trouble, where there's difficulty, where there's strife. Maybe you walk past a lonely person's house and see them there on their own, and it's a problem that almost can't, you can't get out of your head. Your purpose might start with a problem. When you look around your life, Berry, wherever it is that you spend your time, what do you see? What grates on you? Because it's not like the kingdom of heaven. Maybe there's something that's come into mind even now. Maybe with open ears, God says something to us right now. Those things that you see and you can't not see. Those things that you walk past and it's like you can't shift it. You try and move on. Your purpose might start with a problem. I heard an amazing story recently of a Christian guy who set up a thing called Banquet. This guy was part of a group that used to support a food bank. And he went into, I think it was a co-op, where they had a collection station. And he loved the work that the food bank did, but he realized that so many people don't shop in this co-op. There's loads of other places. This thing is like this big, so how much food are we really going to put in it? And then what about all the people that don't really give in kind and all the cash that people don't carry anymore? And then as he was thinking about it, he thought, but what about the food bank? Because they might need loads of one thing and they get donated a load of this thing and then it's kind of great, but it also kind of means they don't really have what they need. And this problem kind of sat with him 
And it was one of those problems that he couldn't get away from. Food banks don't really get what they need, they get what people give, which is great, but might not always solve the problems. And what about all the people that don't shop here, don't carry cash, give in completely different ways? This problem sat with him for so long. And he came up with the idea to set up basically an online food bank, a way of giving to this thing, Banquet, a set amount of money that would then go to a food bank and they could then buy what they needed rather than what people donated. He came up with this idea, put loads of work into it, set up the infrastructure of a website that could facilitate that, got in touch with loads of food banks to see if they could be the recipients. And then lockdown hit. So no one was really able to go out to shop in the same way. People didn't go to places like a co-op in the way that they would once have done. People needed to be able to give online. And instantly, what was already a great idea became like this lifeline for food banks all over the country. What started as a problem to him became something that he wrestled through with God, created a solution to, and then lockdown hit, which meant that it became like the solution that trumped all others. Food banks could get a donation from anywhere in the world, from anyone who could get online, buy exactly what they need and deliver it to someone who needed it almost instantaneously. When I heard that story the first time, I just thought of Joseph in the Old Testament, who solves a famine basically by storing up food in seven years and then stretching it out over seven more. This guy has been part of feeding tens of thousands of people all because a problem wouldn't go away from him and he wrestled it through with God and said, I'll come up with a solution. If there was ever a, for such a time as this kind of moment, I think that's what I would point to. Your problem might be any number of things, something that irks you that you can't move on from. Maybe it's here, maybe it's in another place, even another country. Poverty, climate change, it could be as big as that or as small, inverted commas, as the lonely person next door to you who you never see anyone going to say hello to. The person in your workplace that no one else really likes and so they just get pushed out of everything here or there. Your problem could be big or small by the world scales. It could be here or far. But maybe your purpose starts with identifying a problem. Taking it to God in prayer and saying, God, what's my call in response to this? We can't solve every problem that we see. We're all swamped and bombarded by more need than we will ever be able to meet. But with God, each of us can make a big response on the thing that he's called us to do. And then we come together to be part of this thing called the church. And we get to vicariously benefit from what everyone else is doing, knowing that we are a body that together can achieve far more than any of us could on our own. Maybe your purpose starts with identifying a problem, taking it back to God in prayer and then committing yourself to coming up with a solution, to going around for a cup of tea every week with someone who's on their own, for setting up an online food bank in response to changing patterns of charity giving and everything in between. Whatever it is, commit to being the solution to that problem, and the kingdom will come through your life. I dream of a church so full of the Spirit of God, so full of compassion for need, that people come here when they need solutions to problems because they know the church is going to care. The church has got great people. 
The church wants to be part of the solution to this. So often I think people go to politics or to entrepreneurs. They want to go to angel investors or whatever it is. What about if this place was like an incubator of solutions to the world's problems? So that people get to see the love and the blessing of God through them. I long for a church that sees its task as glorifying God by responding to the needs of the day. Coming up with solutions to problems that no one else can solve. And showing the wisdom and the glory of God as they do it. Second thing then. Your purpose might be confirmed with unlikely provision. Nehemiah, I believe, wasn't expecting anything from the king. He supported his idea, and like I said, I think that went beyond his expectations. But then the king said, okay, I'll give you the time off work. I'll send with you my officials and everything that you need to make the journey. I'll give you letters of approval, which is kind of putting his own reputation on the line here. I'll give you resources that you're going to need. Everything became opened up to him in, a, in such an unlikely way. The king might have had to then bear his own cup, right? Or find someone else to do it whilst he was away on the journey. This inconvenienced him. This came out of his pocket. And yet the provision came and it confirmed the purpose that Nehemiah had. Nehemiah didn't go into this chat with pie charts and a pitch and a return on investment plan. He didn't go kind of making a case that the king might respond to. He just went in sad about the state of his people. And God opened up this massive window of opportunity. He prayed, he responded, and everything opened up to him. Nehemiah knew it was from God because it couldn't have come about any other way. The king was not inclined to say this out of nowhere. But where God calls, he equips. And so as you identify that problem that you might respond to, keep your eyes and your ears open to the ways God might confirm it through unlikely provision. The people that you're expecting to rubbish you and laugh at you, but actually come around and are really interested. The money, the resource, the solutions that come out of nowhere. Keep your eyes open and don't rule anyone or anything out. Yes, of course, I'm not saying you won't have to sacrifice for it. You won't put some of your own money in, your own time. But God can confirm with signs out of nowhere to say, this is the course I've got for you. So don't shut yourselves off to unlikely provision. I think it's really telling that in verse 18, right at the end, when Nehemiah is trying to persuade the people, let's get together and get on board with this. He says, the gracious hand of my God was on me. And he tells them what the king had said. His story of the king responding favorably was part of the people wanting to get on board with the task, right? Testimonies raise faith. God did this for me through the king. It was mind-blowing. And they all go, whoa, I wouldn't have expected that either. Maybe God's in this. I want to get involved. I would love it if when we gathered here and in other places through the week. Part of what we did was tell stories of the unusual provision that we've seen because what it does is it sparks faith in other ones of us. Each of us comes with a little bit and then we hear a story like that and we're like, whoa, God's involved. God's on this. God's on the move. It raises our faith. I hope that as you hear stories like that and share them with other people, this space becomes a bit like an incubator of faith. 
that we come in with some, but we leave with way more because we hear what God's doing in the lives of other people and we throw in our lot every time it applies. Your purpose might be confirmed with unlikely provision. Keep your eyes and your ears open to the way that God works. Finally, and briefly to say, your purpose will come from having dwelt in God's presence. I'm rerunning some themes from last week, but it bears repeating. What came about for Nehemiah was as a direct result of having spent time with God for the days prior to this, and spent time with God in the moment prior to speaking what he wanted to the king. Nehemiah sought God for days, putting aside everything else. He said, God, you've got to bring the solution, not me. You've got to bring the provision, not me. You've got to provide the way, not me, because if it's on me, it's going to fail, and if it's on you, it has to succeed, because God is involved. I get the sense that even in surveying Jerusalem, going through all the gates and seeing all the angles of the walls, it wasn't like a recce, like a work trip with a clipboard jotting it all down. It was more like a pilgrimage. He was going there in a prayerful way to say, God, what is it you want me to do? I think it's to rebuild it, but show me again and confirm it again. He wasn't going to get sketches drawn out and plans made. That will come later. He was going to say, God, is this you? Because if it's not, I don't want any part of it. And if it is, I can't not be involved in this. Everything that came from Nehemiah, everything that we'll see in the coming weeks came from having made his home in God's presence from getting familiar with God's voice, from understanding what God's purpose was. And the same will be true for you. Make your home in God. Make him your first port of call. Learn his ways. Get familiar with his voice, his direction, his guiding. And then when you spot a problem and it doesn't go away, you can say, God, is this you? Or is that just a particularly compelling cause? Is this what you've got for me? Or is this something to encourage someone else towards? Those skills of discernment will become more and more sharp as you dwell in God's presence. As you do that, he'll highlight problems for you, things for you to respond to, ways that he wants you to be about his work. He'll speak his words of purpose and direction. He'll bring you what you need, and he'll convince anyone else that needs convincing on your behalf. And very finally, as you dwell in God's presence, the highest reward that you get is God himself. We don't know how long Nehemiah had been thinking about this. We don't know the time between first thought and actuality, but there was a waiting period, and often for us there's a waiting period too. But every moment you spend in God's presence, you get the reward, which is God himself. So that that moment when everything's aligned, when God, who is the one who knows everything and the perfect timing says, all systems go, you're there and you're ready, having filled yourself up with his goodness. Whilst you wait, waiting in God's presence is the best joy you could get because you get to feel his love for you again. You get to understand his voice. You get to understand who you are because of who he is. The highest reward is God himself. So as you wait for things to become clear, you get him. As other things fall into place, you get him. 
And then when everything strikes, you get him and everyone else gets the benefit of you having been with him. The best solution to a world that doesn't know Jesus is a load of people who are absolutely obsessed with him, who've spent time with him every day and go into anywhere they go so full with the spirit of God that anything knocks them and it overflows. The words that come out of their mouth are words of hope like we've heard. The benefit to the world of you having been with Jesus is incalculable. And then when everything aligns and God's timing is perfect, he says, great, off we go towards this great purpose that you have. As you think about your purpose, what you might respond to, don't skip this step. Nehemiah shows us what happens when you get the order right. Time in prayer first. More time in prayer throughout then the planning, then the execution. Don't involve God halfway through. Don't involve God when everything else fails right at the end. Involve him all the way throughout. Because as we see from Nehemiah, what could have been a period of unpaid leave to go off and do it becomes an all-expenses-paid trip. And what could happen with you could be similarly brilliant. I'm excited by the potential of a room full of people like this. Dwelling in God's presence, noticing what he highlights, taking it back to him in prayer and saying together, we will be part of the solution. As you seek your purpose out, dwell in God's presence, stick close to him and trust that he will guide you in the right time and ultimately for his great glory. Amen.